It's been glamorized in movies and television. But if you wanted to hear about the hot new music releases in the mid-20th century, your options were actually pretty limited. Focused on album reviews and interviews, magazines like the Rolling Stone provided the only real in-depth coverage of the emerging rock and pop scene. According to the 2017 retrospective in The Atlantic, the Rolling Stones' goal was not just to listen to music, but to look at the world through the lens of that music. Starting out as a small hippie 25-cent zine by co-founders Jan Wenner and Ralph Gleason in 1967, it quickly caught the zeitgeist. Within five years, the magazine's front cover became the most sought-after real estate in music. It was this publication that took the modern teenage nation mainstream. Not just the musical acts, but the belief of American youth. Folk heroes like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, martyrs like John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix, and saints like Lester Bangs and Hunter S. Thompson made the pages of the Rolling Stone the center of the musical and cultural universe. Here's Jan Wenner talking about it in his own words. I, I, in the book, I try and tell through my own life and through the prism of Rolling Stone, what Rolling Stone covered and wrote about and who came in and out of Rolling Stone and the stories of people like Real and Hunter and all the other people who came together at a particular, in a particular place in a particular time with a particular spirit in mind uh, represents the story of the last, you know, of our generation, of, of the post, of the ba- what's called, not elegantly, the baby boom, but of this great era of some, what appears to be at least 40, 50 years of time uh, that defined uh, America in, uh, after World War II, the consequences of World War II in, in America. By the time the 70s rolled around, the company moved from its humble beginnings in San Francisco to a sprawling office in Manhattan, and in the process of its unprecedented growth, became a celebrity itself. The pages of the Rolling Stone stood for something. It was the symbol of how the kids were turning into their own kind of bourgeoisie. As a journalistic endeavor, it continued to expand its reach by learning how to sell itself to a wider audience, with deeply reported pieces that had come to be its staple. Howard Cohn and David Weir on the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Tom Wolfe's reporting on the Apollo program in 1973. And Joe Esterhass on the evil of Evil Knievel. The Rolling Stone had become not just where the kids got their reviews, but the melting pot of new journalism. Many of its writers veered away from their origins and began to experiment in techniques of fiction. Of course, the most famous of which being Thompson's invention of gonzo journalism, which he described in the same 2017 Atlantic article as learning to fly as you're falling. Again, Jan Wenner. But Hunt was one of the great transformative spirits of Rolling Stone. I mean, he, he and I for some reason, just hit it off enormously. I recognize in him the kind of talent and charisma and thinking that he had. I mean, his, he wrote The Battle of Aspen was the first thing he wrote for us. And, oh no, it was a Chicano thing. But 
uh, and we shared a common purpose and, and, and mission. I mean, we both, we explicitly said to each other, we have to take this opportunity of Rolling Stone and its audiences in 1971 and use it to try and gain power in this country, to try and gain at least enough power to move things along, you know, that couldn't we, with the youth vote and all it represented, in our naivete, we thought we could move this youth vote to influence a presidential election. And so we went about doing that. And at the same time, we recognized, I think, in each other, I saw in him the great writer and the man who would be the voice of Rolling Stone. I mean, more striking talent you've never seen, you know, more energy. And I think he saw in me the person and the time, the place, the Rolling Stone, the vehicle, where he would have the freedom and the support and the encouragement to do what he wanted to do. And it worked enormously for the both of us. I mean, I'm sure we could have done parts of each of those tasks on our own. He was brilliant without me, and I was going to do Rolling Stone. But together, we really hit some extraordinary high point. And it was his coverage of the election in 72 more than any other thing. And by that time, we had done the Lennon Remembers interviews, and we had won magazine awards for covering Altamont and breaking the Charles Manson, his guilty story, and all that stuff. But it was that coverage of the main story that the United States gives to any kind of journalist, the, the race for the White House, the White House piece, but that campaign trail. On the A story, the most observed, watched story about other journalists, we did something so brilliant and exceptional that changed that journalism forever and put Rolling Stone up into the first rank of American publications. From hippie fun to a money-making machine, from peace and love to cash and fame. The party was over by the time the MTV generation of the 80s bled into the nascent information age of the 90s. Now 56 years later since its first issue, the publication is a shell of its former self. Respected, but ultimately a cog in the machine of a larger media conglomerate. A part of a larger whole that also includes Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, Deadline, Sportico, Rob Report, among others. The Rolling Stone, once the bastion of counterculture, is now another brick in the wall. Today, you can find your music news wherever you want. Long overtaken is the cultural prominence by blogs. Publications as ancient as the Rolling Stone are struggling to continue their relevance. However, ever since its first publication, the impact of the music review has, even in the age of internet aggregators, remained an indispensable piece of culture. The impact on musical taste, the shared experience of music listeners, is all neatly summed up today in a 30-second TikTok. Or, if you'd prefer, in a blog, vlog, long-form article, or podcast. We wanted to see where this industry is today. Who are the movers and shakers in a segment of the music industry that, like many other forms of journalism, seems like it's on the decline, but continues to thrive on being the cultural center of our shared musical understanding? I'm Laura McInnes-Ray, and you're listening to Beneath the Rhythm, an RX Music podcast. We spoke to David Harris, editor-in-chief at Spectrum Culture, Jason Grishkoff, blogger and creator at Indie Shuffle and Submit Hub, Zach Johnson, senior product manager for allmusic.com, and Matthew Perpetua, 
blogger at Fluxblog, formerly of Pitchfork, NPR, and The Rolling Stone. Cool. My name is Jason Grishkoff. I am coming to you all the way from Cape Town in South Africa. I have been music blogging since 2007. I started a blog called Indie Shuffle. And then in 2015, I started a platform called Submit Hub, which has sort of taken over and eclipsed Indie Shuffle. And that's become my, my full-time baby. Cool. So just to kick off uh, the conversation, um, to get started, we're focusing on um, the impact of music reviews on our shared experience as uh, music listeners. Obviously, as much as friends and families and our peers impact that musical taste, we know to be true that also journalists, bloggers, vloggers, podcasters, TikTok dancers, influencers, all that do uh, significantly as well. So can you tell us a bit about how you got into music journalism and what inspires you about writing about music and working in this industry? I've never considered myself a journalist, but it all goes back to uh, the explosion of digital content on the internet. So when I was coming out of university in 2007, gosh, we were already two or three years into the whole Napster and LimeWire and, and that whole fiasco of just being able to access any music you could ever want at your fingertips instantly. So I am old enough. I'm still young, but I'm old enough to remember going into record stores to have to buy your CDs or your albums. You know, you'd hear it on the radio and the only way you could get your hands on that music was to actually go to Tower Records and shell out $20 for a CD, which was extortion in those days. But you would do it. When digital streaming came along, uh, it was in, in many ways revolutionary. Of course, there I was loading up tons of torrented music to Winamp and streaming that. And um, with this abundance of music, came a desire to share it. And that was also coupled with a move that I made just after university. I moved to Washington, D.C. from uh, San Diego, and I left all my friends behind, and it was a pretty depressing experience. I think it often is for people who move to a new city. Uh, it takes some time to get on your feet. And for me, one of the ways to reconnect with those I had left was to send a weekly email of some of the best stuff I had um, well, let's just say illegally downloaded from the internet. Um, I started this little weekly email and people would write back saying, hey, this is awesome. Thanks for it. But I wish I could um, digest this all in one place and have an easy to, to click play button. Can't you put the YouTube video there or the MP3 or something for me to download? Mm -hmm. So I quickly worked up a music blog uh, on WordPress. It was my first time doing that. And I, I didn't really have a concept of music blogging or that this whole community existed. But as I started this journey of converting my weekly newsletter into an actual blog, I quickly discovered that there were forums full of other music bloggers discussing their discoveries, but also their techniques for growing their music blog. And I quickly became addicted to the growth side of it. So for me, it was really satisfying to find new music, share it, but then to actually have an audience come and respond. That's what I was getting hooked on. So uh, from a journalistic standpoint, I was definitely approaching things a lot more holistically. I was learning web development, I was learning marketing, and also I was discovering music and writing about it. That was the path to, to uh, my, I suppose, I want to call it a career as a journalist. I, I would never consider myself a journalist. I'm a enthusiast and a hobbyist music 
discoverer or like a modern crate digger? I don't know. Modern crate digger, I think I might take. (laughs) (laughs) Might use that. I love that. So when obviously you said you worked in, you were sort of developing something and it was sort of happening almost in front of your eyes. So you watched that growth happening and there was something beautiful and a bit addictive about seeing where that would go. And in that entrepreneurial vein, you started another platform as well called Submit Hub. And I wanted to ask how that sort of tied into your experience of, you know, you've obviously cultivated a lot of music knowledge and credibility through all of that work, right? So we wanted to talk a little bit about what does that sort of responsibility feel like when you start to feel like you've gained traction and there's actually a bit of a following there? What's it feel like to kind of carry sort of that credibility and that responsibility to inform or share? As Indie Shuffle started to grow 2010, 2011, 2012, it definitely got quite cool to attend any show I wanted for free, for example. I, I mean, I could, I was going to Coachella for the press pass, and that was, that was sort of the holy grail of the hardest people to convince that you could attend. There were a select few in the music blogging community who did get a little bit carried away with feeling a bit more important than I think they were. Pitchfork stands out to me. Uh, I had a couple run-ins with the editors of Pitchfork and they were not the friendliest of people. They had that sort of, you can quickly develop an attitude where you think everyone is trying to take advantage of you, right? So when you are writing a music blog, um, initially you kick it off, it's really cool, you discover music and then you start getting emails from people who want you to listen to their song and you think, oh, that's rad. Uh, of course, I'd, I'd love to listen to it. I'm going to check it out. And then you know, a year later, you wake up and every day your inbox has 50 emails. By 2014, I had 300 emails a day. And so I think uh, for some music bloggers, it became, you know, their egos got inflated. But I would say that for the, the majority, we weren't taking ourselves too seriously. We didn't consider ourselves journalists. I think I've, I've sort of said that. We were we were bloggers. We were music bloggers. We were amateurs. We were doing it for fun. Some of us were able to, to make a living from it, um, probably about 20 of us. Still, at least from my side, I never felt any weight or expectations or responsibility in terms of, of discovering that music. I simply found songs I liked and shared them. Uh, and it, it, it really came down to that. Um, you know, I, I was often trying to share music that I thought people would be receptive to, not just for me, because by sharing content that people might like, it would actually grow Andy Shuffle, and, and then I'd get more of that, that sort of growth and, and recognition that I was becoming addicted to. To answer your question, no, I, I never personally felt any, any major responsibility. And even now with SubmitHub, I mean, we're uh, off the top of my head, I think we're doing about uh, anywhere between 5,000 to 10,000 shares per day of content that's being, you know, approved and, and either blogged or put in a playlist. And again, I've never thought about it in the context of uh, being responsible or having, having any weight on my shoulders. It's just, it's music. It's just music. And we like listening to music. It's not, uh, it's not like I'm uh, writing something that might start another war or anything like that. It sounds like it was more about sharing for the sake of what you think was good and not going to keep doing this regardless of like, it's almost like you removed the ego from that forum, which, which we know is hard in the, in an industry like music where things can be very oversaturated. So it's hard to stand out. 
while you were working at Indie Shuffle and you were sort of watching that project unfold, where did you see that growing in terms of, okay, we know what we stand for, but we're also not trying to be pitchfork either? I think I had uh, an advantage in that I had a, a well-paying full-time job on the side. So through most of Indie Shuffle's peak, I was working at Google. And so I never really had to worry too much about the income from Indie Shuffle supporting me. I was able to turn that around into um, paying other writers on the website. So we had about 20 other writers contributing to the website and we were paying them per article. I had a, an editor in chief I was paying. And then I also I even hired a team in Bangladesh to help me with some coding stuff. It, it wasn't something I took too seriously. They, honestly, there weren't that many music blogs who were able to sort of shift into that and, and really take it that seriously. There were magazines that had converted. So there was, you know, Rolling Stone, NME, Fader, Filter, uh, these types of entities that they had with journalists and proper review processes and all of that. And, and you know, for them, it was a really serious game. For, but for us music bloggers, we were mostly riding off of the success of Hype Machine and just the fact that during our time, there weren't other good ways to stream music, right? Um, you know, Spotify only really entered the U.S. market starting, I think, in 2013. And SoundCloud, you know, my, my blog predates SoundCloud. So we were, we were just reaping the benefits of the fact that on the internet, music blogs were where you went to listen to music. And that's not the case anymore. You know, music has shifted a lot recently to a state where it's essentially a commodity. It's like water. You open up a tap and you don't think about how it got there the processes involved in cleaning it or anything like that. And it's similar today when you, you, you know, you fire open Spotify and you look for a chill beats playlist and you hit shuffle play and then you drift into the background and you don't know what's going on. The success of Indie Shuffle, the fact that it's still going and you're still, I know you said it's not the focal point of what you're working on now, but it's still up and running and did turn into a forum where a lot of people wanted uh, to see what other voices were saying about integral albums or new music and things like that it turned into that credibility that you said you weren't so focused on at the beginning which i think a lot of great projects start out as as you said that you didn't take yourself too seriously can you sort of speak to as you were saying that like rolling stone used to be like the big magazine it used to be where you went to get your news your music news you know who should i be listening to right now can you sort of speak to that oversaturation we're facing now? There's so many platforms you could be you could be consulting as somebody who even may not be working in music, but might just want to be getting new sources from. Like, can you speak to sort of how that affects uh, the success of different outlets and just gaining a bigger opinion? I would say that today, in general, blogs of any kind, be it music, food, technology, are struggling to get the readership that they once had. And I think some of it is this consumption by Facebook and Instagram. And, and in the case of music, also YouTube, it, it has pushed out a lot of this. And the other one is there is so much to choose from and it's so easily accessible I do wonder if people have lost a lot of the drive to go out and look for things. So it's all at your fingertips. I mentioned crate diggers before, and, and I, I missed that. I'm, I'm not old enough to really have been a crate digger, but some of it must have been driven by 
you're essentially you're stuck at home with nothing to do, but you like music. So let's go look for some music. And today we we don't get bored anymore. And you know, with my kids at school, this is actually an an important part of uh, their curriculum. So with they're at a Waldorf school, and the idea is you're not allowed to use technology as a child. Um, no TV, no phones, none of that stuff. Uh, and they really want the child to get bored because out of that boredom comes creativity and the need to solve it and, and the ability to actually solve it. And I think we're losing a lot of that today. I mean, I even find this myself. I, I remember as a teenager being bored, literally nothing to do. And today, if I ever have a moment of downtime, I just open up my phone and there's something there to keep me entertained. And, and I'm just going to the regular sites and I don't have to go out looking for it. So music blogs were uh, sort of an analog to that crate digging. It was, you know, people would go onto the internet and look for new stuff. You were looking, it wasn't all just fed to you. And today there's a lot of stuff just getting fed to you and it's this overwhelming noise. And so I would imagine that most blogs, I can certainly say this of Indie Shuffle and of many other music blogs, but I would, I would extend it to many other industries have seen a complete waning of the interest in what they're doing because people aren't really searching that out anymore. Um, and, and that makes it difficult as a musician. If you are trying to break through the noise today, it's very difficult, right? I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of follow this philosophy of Kevin Kelly's A Thousand True Fans. So really focusing on a tiny niche rather than trying to break out. So music blogs back in the day were an excellent way to break out if you could get 10 or 20 of the biggest music blogs to cover you, and then you skyrocketed up uh, the charts on Hype Machine, which was a it sort of kept track of what all the blogs are writing about, you were going to start selling out shows and you were going to get booked for festivals and you were going to do all of this stuff. And today, that's not going to happen. So as an artist, you actually have to leverage these tools that are available to, to try and foster that smaller community. And I think you have to be really smart about it. Um, and the same can be said for content creators. So we've seen this rise in, in Patreon. <laughs> I mean, even OnlyFans. The whole idea here is that it's a, a tight subscription model and you're really focusing on the 50 people who passionately care about what you do. So the, the days of you know, getting 5 million views a month on your blog are probably well gone. At our peak, we were doing 5 million views a month. Now we're down to like 300, 400,000. So... It's a fraction of what it was. And I, I think a lot of that is just a broader behavioral change in the way that, that we as humans are uh, either getting bored or consuming media. I know one of the things they say a lot with when you're trying to market something like a new project, uh, they say the more people you try to appeal to, the less people you'll reach. It's like one that. of those sort of, yeah, one of those sort of simple simple things to abide by where at first you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I want everybody to read my article. I want everybody to listen to my podcast. And then slowly you understand that it means you need to really know what you stand for. And that's the people who will find you. Now that we're that everything is digital and we've seen this sort of oversaturation, can you predict anything, any like large turning points after this? Like, do you, can you picture anything like you've, worked with Google, you obviously understand, I think, more of the analytical side as well. But where do you go from here at this point where everything is so at our fingertips that you can sort of pick any opinion you want and there's somebody there who's already saying it? 
is everything just going to go into the ether at this point? It always has just gone into the ether. I made an analogy not too long ago about uh, this sort of being like the ocean. So I watched a David Attenborough documentary many years ago. And one of the things, it, it was Deep Blue or one of those, it was, it was about the ocean. And one of the things that struck me about it was that 95% plus of the ocean is just empty, especially like the big middle parts. There's not much going on. In many ways, the internet and this digital space today is kind of like that. And you can thrust yourself out into it and really go broad. And, and you'll find that at the end of the day, there are very few people that you're going to really bump into and connect with. For the future trend, I'm uh, not Nostradamus. And if I was, I would get my predictions wrong because I think he did. But it, it's hard to know where things will go. And I do think that more emphasis on, on building a smaller, tighter community is probably the way to go about it. And, and that's been there all along uh, you know, with, with IRC chat rooms 20 years ago, web forums. Now, I mean, I, there's still things like Facebook groups and, and whatnot that, that can allow that. And I think that as a musician, returning to this idea of fostering that tight-knit community is going to become more and more important. And the same applies for people who write about music. Having that, that community of people that you know you can connect with is going to be much better than just sort of wading out into the ocean. You want, you want to stay on the coral reefs within your like one meter span where there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff going on and people who are interested in you because as soon as you start to float out there, you're going to get lost and you're going to lose those connections. That's what I would think for, for sort of the future where this is going. I mean, there's a, a lot of talk about TikTok and Instagram and those are sort of the buzzwords these days for music and we're trying to facilitate that, but we really find mm-hmm. it's quite difficult. It gets lost out there. People will flip through 100 TikTok videos in a go, and unless your song comes up uh, on 10% of those videos, it's going to get lost, and there's not a real connection that they're drawing to your music. As someone promoting on TikTok, you're probably going to need to spend a lot of time actually building up your personal brand and your engagement and your connections with the fans rather than just paying a bunch of people to share your content. I, I mean, that's the thing. We have people who come to us hoping for virality and, and, and they'll go through Submit Hub, send their music out to a bunch of blogs or Spotify playlists or TikTok creators. And, you know, let's say they do TikTok and they get 50 videos. At the end of it, they'll go, wow, I didn't move the needle at all. And, and that's kind of the state we're at now. The, the, this oversaturation of it means that for you to get that movement is really difficult. And instead, you need to focus on, on sort of building your brand, your community, and drawing people towards you rather than expecting them to seek you out. So that's the future? I don't know. <laughs> Who's to say? Who knows? I mean, I can't predict. I mean, COVID came along. I wasn't expecting that. You know, Bill Gates anticipated it and a bunch of, what's it, endemologists. But um, I didn't see that coming. That was interesting. Like, who knows what's next, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it, it's crazy. My take is to follow the young'uns. Um, yeah, the, the ones who are between 16 and 25. If you can keep track of what they're up to, then you'll have a better chance identifying what the, mm-hmm. what, what the future is, because they are the future. and I'm the editor-in-chief of Spectrum Culture and uh, also one of the hosts of the Enjoy Your Life podcast that we have on the site. It's great to have you on. 
to give you sort of a bit of a bit of background on the inspiration of the episode, we were just looking further into exploring, you know, the impact of music publications in the greater music landscape and how these publications starting from obviously print and now uh, lots online still helps people shape their opinions and overall preferences and taste and just how there's so much more to consult now. Um, so we're interested in exploring that sort of phenomenon further, obviously with some key players in the industry. So to get started, you obviously work are editor-in-chief of Spectrum Culture, which you started, um, so you have plenty of experience working as a journalist and in editorial. And you've seen some pretty significant shifts, I'm sure, culturally and uh, through technology. Can you just tell us a bit about how you got into the field or your inspiration behind starting Spectrum Culture? So I studied journalism as one of my bachelor's degrees at Penn State, and I was the music beat journalist for the Collegian, the Daily Collegian. This was like back in the mid-90s, a long time ago, and um, I really enjoyed doing it. I just did it for a couple of years. And then, uh, you know, flash forward 12 years, I was, uh, you know, teaching high school and just feeling kind of bored. And um, I saw an an ad saying that like Tiny Mixtapes was looking for writers and I applied and got in pretty good with uh, Marvin Lynn, who was the the founder of that and became the film editor over there for a bit. And then just kind of decided to branch out on my own it, less because I uh, it just it was more just like uh, I felt like uh, Tiny Mix Tapes was uh, covering just a niche kind of market. And I wanted to cover more mainstream, both mainstream and also, you know, just all, all kinds of things, you know, use the word spectrum, I guess, in there. So uh, that's kind of I mean, I, I guess we, we, I founded it in 2008. So I've been doing this for a long time. Getting old. I wanted to also bring up on I know in, on the website. In your About Us section, uh, you specifically state how your writers and journalists are open to covering whatever it is they think is relevant and interesting, so it isn't just indie only. Did you feel like that was something that was sort of a void you were looking to fill where other publications were maybe focused a little too hard on taste making or having a certain edge to them or something like that? That wasn't exactly it. I just know that, like, I think I covered the Pineapple Express movie or something, or it might have been a Batman movie for Tiny Mixtapes, and it got a lot more traffic than the normal, like, indie fair that I was covering. You know, really, like, I think I'm not interested in, like, breaking new bands or setting taste necessarily, but I, I think that if someone is writing about something that they love or excited about, that that kind of, like, comes through in the review. And all the writers on my sites basically self-select what they're writing about. So there is no, like... Oh, the new buzz band's coming out. One of you has to review this. If, for example, there's like I don't know, like, um, but like, there's been some bigger like buzzy albums that we just don't cover because no one's interested in doing it. Um, you know, we're not interested in like doing like the best new music thing or um, necessarily or try to like be the ones, the first ones to actually like kind of make a band big or break a band. It's more just about like people who are passionate about writing and re-listening and. Um, in watching film and in reading books and just like kind of just engaging with the text or the or the album or the film in a way that uh, hopefully other people who are interested or love the film or the, or the album would also be inspired to read. You know, I mean, I think that mm-hmm. uh, it's, I, it was it was kind of a dumb venture at the get go, but I was noticing that like there was less and less stuff to read on the web, more like video content and you know just memes and stuff and the idea is is like hey people still like to read sometimes and uh that's Mm -hmm. kind of been the the mission ever since you know the older i get to the more dug in i get about it as well 
do you think long form articles are are kind of dying? I don't know if it's dying. I mean, I think that they're not like as easy to digest as like a 30 second TikTok video or like a a flashy, uh, you know, short thing. But I don't know. I mean, people still read. Mm -hmm. The New York Times (laughs) is still out there. The the Guardian's still out there. Uh, Vanity Fair. I mean, people still still read. I think it's it's a an art that is getting harder for people because our intent our attention spans are getting shorter but no i don't think it's dying i wouldn't say that mm-hmm. so you also feature on uh the enjoy your life iheart radio podcast uh, also on the spectrum culture website what would you what do you feel like is your favorite medium for like music discourse specifically now because you've obviously worked in editorial for quite a few years but you got to follow the times and see what else is out there how do you feel now yeah we usually have like a, a guest uh, each episode so um but to answer your question i think the best way to have a discourse about music is just to hang out with someone and have a conversation to be honest with you yeah. um but um you know that's not always the case i mean there's always just the, like oh hey have you heard the the album by blank or you know oh you, you're listening to this have you heard of these guys from before mm-hmm. and i just know personally like i spend like a lot of my free time just like digging through the web looking for like new music to like inspire me or to get me excited and i don't do that through like letting an algorithm pick songs for me it's usually like through recommendations of friends or by reading um i don't know if i'm answering your question or not though uh but um you know i think a review can do a lot of things if it's well written i think that there's a lot of and i'm not gonna say our site's also not guilty of this it's also just the kind of -of run-of-the-mill type of review too but i mean i think a review can serve for a couple of things it could be if you're gonna go like look at film criticism like the roger ebert sort of like thumbs up you should go see this this weekend or you should go listen to this or an active discourse for like for example if you've actually seen the film or you know the album pretty well then it's for you to come back and read later where you can get some deeper thought and that's what we're kind of hoping for with our stuff it's not just like the you know hey you need to go out and buy the new alex g record because it's awesome but actually like digging in deep and like engaging in that sort of thing is there anything specific you feel like you'd like to see more of in the music world for rather whether that's through publication or just a specific style that you think is more valuable? Not necessarily. I think uh, as long as there's a market for something and people are excited about it, it should be out there. You know, I mean, my own personal taste, I'm not going to impose that on anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, what you listen to is probably different than what I listen to and vice versa. You know, I will tell you like, hey, this I just got this Hawkwind record delivered from England today, along with a Lee Hazelwood record, but it doesn't mean that I feel like there needs to be more like Lee Hazelwood in the world out there, you know. What? Sorry, what's that instrument in the background there? That's a sitar that I bought when I was in India. Oh, very cool. Do you know how to play yeah, that? No, but I do play some other stuff, but not that. <laughs> Overall, I think it's just interesting to see how many shifts there's been. Some people are still... Uh, hooked on reading things in, you know, reading a tangible book, reading a newspaper, reading the new magazine copy of something. Um, I think just observing that over the years, how can you stand out as a a writer at this point where it just feels like there's so many resources and a lot of noise to cut through? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know is the answer. I do agree with you that maybe, I don't know if you, if you were saying this as a statement, but like, when you read a Kindle, you don't have the same relation, like the tactile relationship that you do with it as you would a book, like as like the book molds into your hands or the pages, you know. Um, but uh, I'm not really looking to stand out. I mean, like the thing is, is like this is like not even like like my primary job. Like I have a, I have a day job that I, I really enjoy, and I just kind of do this because I like the community of writers that I'm with that, that we you know that at work. There's like 30 people that write for the site, and it's all pretty much labor of love. 
I'm not a business person. Um, I'm not interested in having Condé Nast buy us. I mean, if they want to, that'd be great, but I'm not like looking for that. Um, it's kind of just like, hey, let's go see some concerts and, uh, you know, maybe get a ticket or two here or there, get a book for free and like, let's write about it. Um, I, I think that in terms of like all the noise out there, like there's only so much like capital to go around and we're not looking to be like, we're not super cool. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like we're not trying to be like the like tastemakers, but it's just like more like a place where people can go and like read some stuff about stuff that they like, you know, and people can write about stuff that they like too. Have you had any experience with like unintended consequences of like a positive or negative review on something? Uh, not really. I mean, I've had like a, I've had a, I mean, there was a, like a band recently that like didn't like a review that we wrote and they just like took the, like one of the taglines and like, uh, like maybe like, for three weeks on Instagram, like put the tagline over like a bunch and tagged us and put a bunch of pictures on, but like, not really. I mean, every once in a while, a publicist will be like, not happy, but um, there's no consequences. I mean, it's like, if someone's going to be like that upset about a negative review, I mean, we're, we're not interested in like attacking people. I've made, I've made friends through it, which is cool. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, uh, it's been, uh, I mean, it, I, there's supposed to be separation and stuff between the, the people that we, cover but um you know it's it's definitely uh and i made friends with people online like writers and stuff who are now friends in person and stuff like that as well it's just like a real nice way to bring people together writing an article like that's printed and writing something online do you feel like the format of a music review has changed in your experience i can tell you that if we screw someone's name up we can go back in and erase it and <laughs> fix it real fast um if that's the case I mean, once again, it goes back to the idea of like holding something in your hand and reading it on the screen. If you're reading a magazine, like if you're reading a, I don't know, like a Rolling Stone magazine or that's just to show how old I am again, I keep bringing that up. But if you're reading a magazine, you're not going to have as many distractions, right? So if you're reading like um, like my, my our spectrum culture or something and then like your uh, Discord starts flashing or your like Gchat starts flashing like or whatever, it's going to I think it's harder to concentrate. You know, but these little phones aren't awesome to read on mm -hmm. either. The hope is that the quality is the same. It also a lot of depends on who's running the show and how much money is being put into it and so on and so forth. I mean, if it's all volunteer and people are just, I mean, I guess on the other hand, if it's all volunteer, people are realizing that it's like a labor of love and they're and not just like getting paid, like punching the clock, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, if someone's doing something full-time and this is their, their full-time job where they're like, you know, you get to go out and you have to write this, article about Wynn Butler or whatever you're doing uh, and spend time on it that obviously the more time and, and resources the better. What do you think can you see any fundamental changes just as a music journalist um, in the future or anything coming around the corner? You know I'll get my magic eight ball out <laughs> and, and I don't know I mean I'm not like I said I'm not like the, the hippest person or have my finger on the pulse I mean the hope is is that people keep reading um, is really what it comes down to or I mean, but the thing with the internet I think is that you'll know that anyone with even the slightest interest in something be it like model trains or like dressing up like Han Solo every Thursday of the month there's somebody else out there that's interested in that sort of thing and like there will always be an audience of I mean they might be one that's small we make joke on our podcast that there's only three listeners and so there, we there made are, that joke too <laughs> yeah and even if there are only three listeners that's fine because at least i'm reaching like three people you know and it's the doing of the podcast that's the fun and uh you know having the guest on and hanging out with my two friends and talking about whatever the guest chooses as the topic to talk about uh is what is the real reason i'm doing it and uh the, the uh 
having people listen in and there's icing on the cake. Yeah, but there's a lot of noise and it's exhausting to keep up and having to play the game. And I just, you know, just choose not to a lot of the time. I feel like that's kind of a isolated opinion in an industry like this. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. My name is Zach Johnson, and I'm the senior product manager for allmusic.com. Uh, I started there as a writer and an editor back in 2000, uh, and I've been kind of working in a series of different roles from editor to uh, some of the more technical roles to some of the more business roles, and now I oversee the, the website, um, working with the editorial team on figuring out what we want to publish each week and also working with advertisers and technology partners on making sure that the site is always up and running. We were kind of looking to explore just, you know, how publications and how sort of music credibility grows over the years and sort of the evolution of how that affects pop culture and the way magazines morphed over obviously into the digital age and just the way that we're kind of reflecting on what that means to work in the industry that's gone through those changes and the significance of all of those changes. A lot of that we know has been shaped, you know, our thoughts and feelings towards music. A lot is very personal and emotional, but it is also impacted by tastemakers and respected journalists and blogs. We want to explore more about where that comes from. Just to start off, you obviously have plenty of experience working in the music industry and you've worked at allmusic.com, I believe you said since 2000, um, yeah. which which is a long enough stretch to have seen some pretty significant shifts. Uh, That's a lot of internet years. Yeah, both, you know, technology, culturally. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got in the field or what inspired you to get started in there? Sure. So I graduated college with an education degree and realized I didn't want to be a teacher. <laughs> I wanted to work at a record store. So uh, luckily, there was a Tower Records opening in my hometown uh, right around that same time. Uh, so I ended up getting a job there and really loving working with music, categorizations, you know, those kinds of things. And at the same time, I'd been doing a little bit of writing for local magazines and things like that. And when Tower, the great SS Tower, went belly up uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, I ended up landing at All Music, which at the time was kind of more well-known for their books, the All Music Guides, and they had specific guides to the All Music Guide to Jazz, the All Music Guide to Blues and Rock and things like that, where they were really cataloging the, the, the principle behind that was when you've got the entirety of the recorded world to start with or to, to listen to, where do you start? How do you, re, how do you know which Miles Davis album to pick up first or which Bob Dylan album to pick up first? So they really kind of had this all music mentality of trying to capture all these kinds of things. And it was really interesting because at the time of, you know, as we all fondly remember our record stores, whether they were the big HMVs and, and Virgins and Towers of the world uh, or the, you know, indie record shops, you'd find that clerk behind the counter that was like, oh, I remember you like Stereolab and this just came out. So we put it behind the counter for you. And that sort of face to face um, knowledge of uh, customer base 
uh, and just the, the the weirdos and the great people that would wander into the store were uh, getting lost as the stores closed down and and record stores became less of a thing. So I think it's it has been interesting because the concept of a tastemaker or a curator or a critical voice is necessary because there is so much out there. And today with Spotify and YouTube music and Apple music and all these things, there are literally tens of thousands of songs being uploaded every day. And there needs to be some kind of shepherding of a guiding hand to help bring the interesting things to light if you don't have that face-to-face conversation with the clerk across the countertop. So that's really what attracted me to all music and, and what we've really been trying to do. We don't really have the concept of guilty pleasures. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll rate a Britney Spears album in the same methodology that would rate a, a Miles Davis album, which if this is what you're looking for, this is some of the best of the best um, and not try to pit things against each other. I, w- I wanted to bring up an interesting point. Uh, I remember I read a an article. It was uh, an article in Tedium talking about how fundamental all music was specifically as a publication. Yeah, um, just considering it's, you know, gravitas in the music world, but also just in pop culture and how fundamental uh, its commentary was. And that's a big that's a big deal when you're working in, especially once everything goes on the web, that's all access at that point. And it's a big responsibility to carry that sort of authority. And I wanted to kind of just dig into more about that like what is it like to carry that sort of responsibility in you know the greater online forum for commenting on music and just the power of having that voice almost shape other people's opinions first yeah uh we take it pretty seriously you know um one of the things that's always a little complicated is that we try to analyze an album within the group's catalog as opposed to um kind of comparing it we may say that a a Radiohead album is only three stars when it may be the best album that came out that year, but it's not necessarily an OK Computer or a Kid A. I think the editorial team takes it really seriously as far as when something new comes out and it is going to be either A, critically acclaimed or important, you know, a Kendrick Lamar or something like that, or if it hits and it's a real flop, I don't I don't think that the team relishes kind of giving out lumps to an established act that kind of fails in their in their delivery. Um, there's sort of a famous Van Morrison album that came out earlier this year. And despite the music being good, the message wasn't, it was sort of a, a grumpy old man diatribe. Uh, and, and we kind of detailed it as such. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely was. And and it was it was, it very much felt like a get off my lawn sort of album. And and we kind of called it out to say, you know, this, the the musicianship is great and the song structure is is fine, but the the message behind it, you know, just yeah. doesn't really resonate. And, you know, that's something that I think is important to say, but I think the editors take that into account when they're thinking about, okay, what is the statement that or not only myself as a, a critic is going to make, but all music uh, is going to represent, you know, where does this fall in, in the artist's discography? Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's important and it's definitely taken into account. It's certainly not taken lightly. And things have to kind of wax and wane also with how things change culturally as well. So I, I wouldn't want to be the editor having to dig in the archives and go, oh, okay, we might have to review that one. <laughs> 
Right, exactly. That happens. But but when that does happen, I think it's it happens for a reason. And and you know, if all of a sudden there's something like a Shuggy Otis or or one of these artists that kind of bubble up that nobody really knew about, those are sort of fun discoveries. And the nice thing is that we've got kind of this back catalog of information that if something gets discovered, you know, something shows up in a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack or something like that, and all of a sudden it's or in an iPod commercial, you know, everybody's talking about it. We can go back to it and go, oh, yeah, maybe this was more important. And we will do that, you know, over time. And I think we get a little bit of uh, heat for it, but we will go back and revisit an older album and say, you know, at the time when we wrote about it, you know, it wasn't, it didn't necessarily resonate, but over time it has influenced other artists. It has launched other, you know, subgenres. So maybe we need to revisit it and we'll bump it up. Or in the other way, if we think a debut is really terrific and it's four and a half stars and then the next three albums that come out blow it away, we may have to dock that initial album, you know, a, a star or something like that, even though it's still terrific within the artist catalog, it's not as good as the Kid A or OK Computer that they made later. So obviously working somewhere as established as something like allmusic.com, it, I was curious if there was any publications or even just magazines that you as a music enthusiast as well, um, and given your editorial <laughs> background, that you read that you find is kind of takes more of like the devil's advocate approach or is just maybe not linked quite as much to a brand, but isn't afraid to sort of just say what they think. Is there anyone interesting that comes to mind or any name? Um, Pitchfork, you know, you, there's still kind of a, a, a real force in the, in the industry and there's, mm-hmm. there've been sort of some interesting articles in the last year or so about whether or not Pitchfork can make or break a band uh, I definitely think that they had the potential uh, at one point, and they probably still do. Um, and they're not afraid to call out, you know, or to, to highlight really good new artists or to lambaste uh, somebody that's that's. Uh, I don't feel like they've ever had the um, aversion to be be the snarky kid in the class or to to you know when when Jet put out their second album and they just published their published review was just a YouTube video of a monkey peeing in its own mouth. That might not be uh, as descriptive or as informative as what all music would have done, but it was kind of a it was kind of a funny punk rock move. So, you know, there are some YouTubers. I, there's a guy named Pat Finnerty that I like a lot who uh, who has a series called What Makes the Song Stink, and he's he's a musician and he mm-hmm. you know can can pull apart some stuff that that we wouldn't do on all music, but uh, it definitely is really well done and makes me laugh. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there are a bunch of different places out there, but I've always gravitated more towards the place that are the places that are more sincere, you know, an aquarium drunkard or something like that, where, you know, they're just trying to find the best music and get it out in front of people. I was curious, the inspiration for this episode was actually kind of inspired after Jan Wenner released his autobiography. And I knew I wanted to get my hands on it because I love learning about the ins and outs, uh, even post editing. Uh, I like to know, I like stories uh, coming from the voice. And it sort of launched us into this rabbit hole of like, he is talking about a moment and that moment was, you know, the Rolling Stone. It was huge. It was like, it was like the, the beacon of authority in the music industry. And that was kind of what inspired, okay, so we're not really there anymore. Like there's just so, so much noise and so much oversaturation just because of the way, you know, the internet works. We know the publications that are still good stand out and sort of what are the qualities of music authority that make that sort of give you that credibility and make you stand out. I was just curious your thoughts on that since you've worked with all music for a number of years, how you sort of see that now, uh, switching positions and just sort of uh, how things have changed. 
I definitely think that you're right that at that period of time, Rolling Stone was the kind of single voice that was out there. And a lot of it was, as you said, pre-internet. Um, everything was was different. Publication, we always talk about with you know social media today. Long ago, if you wanted to make some kind of angry rant against the government, you had to write a letter to the newspaper, to the editor, and then maybe they would publish it and maybe they wouldn't. And now literally everybody has that same option and that same voice. And the same kind of thing happened with the explosion of music blogs in the early 2000s and, um, and how just at that point anybody could create a voice. And um, we saw a lot of really great writing coming out of there. But it also really kind of knocked some of those those pillars, uh, some of those kind of upper echelon publications off their pillars. And what you see now with a Rolling Stone or a Spin or, you know, any of these, any of these places, Pace Magazine, is that, you know, they've got to diversify a lot more for their online audience. And in order to get that almighty advertising eyeball, you got to do a lot of stuff like red carpet, whatever, and what's happening with the Kardashians and things like that. So it makes it a little tough to to read some of these publications that always seemed like they were starting out covering the Vietnam War and and Nixon's, you know, White House. And then now they're they're trying to catch pictures of starlets coming out of limos. So it, it gets a little disheartening in some ways, in my opinion. I've always kind of gravitated towards just trying to establish a straightforward narrative about this is what the music represents this is where it fits in the catalog whether or not it's worth picking up those sorts of things having this giant shift you couldn't wait to pick up the next copy of something off the newsstand which sounds like something my grandfather would say to now having to grab the attention and eyeballs different advertising companies and, and just try to tr just trying to stay afloat it's tough and i feel like we've done a pretty good job of just trying to stay close to our message and not um, dumb it down as much as we probably could if we were <laughs> hungry for more well it's always that that go between of staying in your roots and then also wanting to reach everybody and it's it's a tough I don't know I think I think a lot of brands and companies go through the same thing but I think especially as a, a music publication it's like I don't want to forget where I came from but I and I want to gatekeep what I think is good only for the people that I think really appreciate it like it's always that funny sort of snobbery right. that you know right. I, I've definitely been at times yeah. but um obviously being a music fan for it sounds like always when you joined allmusic.com did you know you were joining something huge like did you have any concept of sort of what that would look like or were you just happy to work somewhere musically inclined it was kind of yes and no being from michigan and the all music i started in michigan it was always sort of known that um you know there was this company that was doing something sort of initially without a business plan you know just wanting to come up with this document that would help people find the, you know, the music that they would end up loving. They turned it into a book and then it ended up turning into a CD-ROM and it was on kind of the Wisconsin gopher net even before the World Wide Web existed. So it was sort of this Michigan apocryphal story, but at the same time, you could run into people from anywhere, you know, and talk to them and then say, oh yeah, I know allmusic.com at the same time that you would talk to people and they would know Rhapsody or they would know, you know, these other kind of up and coming online resources. But what I didn't really realize was the longevity of it. You know, you, you start somewhere and especially at the time when the internet was just kind of becoming established and you never really know 
okay, am I, am I here for three years? Am I here for five years? The concept of working for an insurance agency for 55 years and getting a watch at the end of it isn't really, isn't really something that our generation is burdened with. So I didn't really anticipate that I'd be here for 22 years. But the great thing is, is that, you know, I've been able to move within the company from writing about you know bluegrass and folk records to I got to go to in one trip I visited Apple and Google and Facebook in the same three days and another trip I went on like I think it was 11 flights in eight days to Japan and South Korea talking to people about getting all music content into automobiles so like it's been a, a really uh, interesting ride and there's so much that can be done with music information I don't think it's it's done. You know, I think that there's still places we can go. And, and the nice thing is that the music isn't going anywhere. It's it's more bifurcated than ever. And there are more places to get it. And there are more avenues and there are more resources. Everybody's always going to need some sort of guiding hand, whether it is the guy behind the, the counter uh, at the local record shop or some sort of algorithm or, you know, system that that helps present to you the music that you'll be interested. Because there's so much coming out of the faucet you know, nowadays, uh, you need something that, that helps guide you there. And the thing that we've always tried to do is we've got an, a classical department. We've got a jazz department. We're trying to, you know, really uh, cover all, well, there's no way to cover all the music, especially nowadays when, you know, there's more and more stuff coming out all the time, but at least giving a good sampling of when we send out our new release newsletter every Friday, you know, there are 40 to 50 different new albums that have been highlighted and, and reviewed and rated that week. So you can kind of flip through and say, oh, I didn't know Built to Spill had a new album that came out this week. And um, you can dig into it. That was actually what I was going to lead into next was what... Talking you... about Built to Spill? Oh, specifically that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what you'd like to see more of or if there's something that uh, you you think is missing. Like if there's a specific, maybe like a gap in the industry or just mm. something you think... We could be doing more of as journalists and writers i think in general i'm still attracted to kind of long form pieces like you just were talking about the young winner book and that's that's a really fun one i'm right in the middle of stephen hyden's uh, the long road uh, his pearl jam book that he just put out so um there's so much bite-sized stuff that's happening nowadays and it seems like we've drifted away from some of the kind of longer and more in-depth pieces uh, that's something that always still appeals to me getting not just necessarily the snapshot of Taylor Swift's potential track list for her upcoming album is going to be what are the motivations behind some broad, you know, musical genre that I, you know, I don't have enough information about, but, you know, maybe I could get filled in on. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of the long form piece. It's like something when you grow up reading it that way, that's one thing where it's very close to my heart. And I, as much as you need to be informed and you need to you know, consult as many resources as possible. I still just like to sit in one place, have it in my hand and read like a full right, <laughs> two, right. two magazine page, you know. Uh, and obviously, yeah, that I think that style of writing was, was kind of the classic patented Rolling Stone style of like yeah. get the journalist to go hang out with uh, the band for a day and um, hopefully don't get swept up on tour.
Hi, I'm Matthew Rapetra. I do a website called Flux Blog, which I've been doing since uh, 2002, like 20 years as we speak, a little over that. It is a music blog. It was uh, one of the original MP3 blogs. It still is, <laughs> even though I don't think people really care about the MP3 part of it necessarily. But it also includes a podcast and uh, like a lot of very ambitious playlist projects. Now it's kind of grown to include those things. And it's all kind of collected as a newsletter at the end of the week. And in addition to all of that, I've also worked as a music critic and journalist for Rolling Stone and Pitchfork and NPR and, you know, a bunch of others. But those are the big boys. The inspiration for this was actually the autobiography by Jan Wenner. And hmm. we were interested in that sort of history and the narrative of the way music publications has sort of evolved over the years. Obviously, we run a music podcast, so we feel connected to this as well um, in the digital age and beyond. <laughs> I've got to read that new Jan book because I read like the two existing biographies of him, one of which is long out of print, but was, as my as I understand it, was just kind of like forbidden at the Rolling Stone office. So when I found that, I was like, oh, I have to find that on eBay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there's some brutal stuff in that. I'm not sure if you've read that one. He's, he just comes across yet. as an absolute monster in that one. But So this would be a perfect time to bring up that you actually used to work for the Rolling Stone. Yeah, I worked at Rolling Stone for about a year, maybe a year and a half, uh, back around 2010, 2011. I think it's like, yeah, the, that chunk of time. We are curious about exploring essentially the impact of how news and opinions were spread as started off, obviously, in publications. There was, you know, the big Rolling Stone was one of the big ones. Um, and as we moved away from print, it became very a very oversaturated sort of forum. And we're interested in exploring, you know, what is it like to hold that kind of accountability and responsibility as a as a music journalist, as a tastemaker, sort of some of the ways that you go about bringing information, using your expertise and putting it out into uh, the public. You obviously have lots of experience working in the music industry. Could you, to get us started, just tell us a bit how you jumped into music or what inspired you to continue working in it? Okay, so uh, I started my site Flux Blog in 2002. It was kind of an outgrowth of just like my web presence at the moment in time. It was called Flux Blog because I was using variations on the name Flux on a message board. So like my initial audience was like message board people that I knew from a couple of different communities. You know, it was something that was done, had a lot of pressure or interest, but it was, I was working on it during a time when I was out of school. And I was also um, at that moment in time at living at home. And I was just like, did not know what I was doing with my life. And it kind of needed something to take seriously. So I took the blog seriously. And the initial mission there was just finding interesting music. And that's kind of still around a time where like Soul Seek was a big thing. And it was easy to just kind of like find like really interesting, weird people around mm -hmm. the world and just rummage through their files and find cool things. I think a lot of my initial focus was on kind of like an international pop underground. And, you know, that would include people who would eventually become like pretty well known. Um, including like MIA, for example, or Annie or Robin. I mean, Robin eventually became a pretty big deal. But a lot of things like that, I was just really fascinated by what was happening and, you know, what was now visible to people. Like things had been happening, but 
the technology had made it easier to, to kind of get a glimpse that kind of bypassed a lot of the media, whether they were interested in something or not, and also make it easy to share things. So I kind of got in at the right moment for that, where a lot of, like, I, I've never had more influence than in the, maybe the initial few years of the site. I don't think people really noticed it until like maybe late 2003. So like the apex of that would be like, from that point through maybe like 2007, 2008, where I think a lot of music industry people were paying attention to what I was doing and it would kind of ref be reflected in what was getting signed or promoted or things like that. I think, you know, getting influence, uh, like, well, like how can music writers, music critics, whatever be influential? I think you often have like a greater influence when like other people who have some kind of power are paying attention. So you don't necessarily need the biggest megaphone. You just kind of need to have, um, and I think like eventually I would probably have like more, you know, people paying attention, but probably less influence. I think that happens all the time. Uh, Cause you know, it's just one among lots of other things. And uh, especially as the, the music blog uh, thing really blew up in that period of time as well. So, you know, it wasn't just me. It was like a lot of other people doing the same thing. Um, and I think that was a really beautiful time that, that period in the aughts where there was this like explosion of very personal taste making of just individual people or little groups of people, uh, bypassing media and just kind of being excited about things very organically. And I think, uh, in the period of time after that, in the 2010s, you know, various things, including the death of, uh, Google Reader and social media becoming a bigger thing, bigger and bigger and bigger thing. And just like, and, and how that all impacted publications too. Everything just kind of pushed things away from that being the, the, the focus of anyone's attention. Pretty much die hard stuck with it, but otherwise people kind of moved on to different things or, or it kind of took different shapes. Like on Tumblr, for example, I think Tumblr was actually pretty powerful with music for a little while there. I think maybe in some cases still are because a lot of the, the K-pop stuff really hit America first uh, in, K in, uh, in Tumblr. And that just obviously now is one of the biggest pillars of pop music at the moment. I'm interested because you started Fluxblog, did you find that when you, what year was that that you started? 2002. 2002. Did you find that when you started, when you wanted to launch Fluxblog, there, you were hoping to fill something that wasn't being done already or that there was you didn't find was being done properly I, or i yeah i think uh in the very earliest phases i was just kind of like <laughs> doing a thing to do it but as it kind of took shape i i think i started having more of a dogma personal idea of what uh, i was trying to do uh, one of which was provide some kind of counter-programming to what other publications were doing, and also a different way of writing about music generally. You know, this is at a point in time where the default for writing about any any music was to write about a full-length album, and I just completely changed the orientation to songs. So it was always about songs and very seldom about albums. Like, I think I would occasionally, like, pull back on certain things to talk about a full record, but that was the outlier. And then, you know, you would see within a few years, the shift to people writing about songs uh, becoming more and more of a thing, whether it was in print or eventually like Pitchfork uh, developed their track section to which I, I was a contributor. But yeah, there, there's like little things like that, trying to just do things my way and kind of 
see what happens if you know if that has any impact through doing the site over the years there's always like little formal things that are challenges I give to myself or like little things I decide I hate other people doing this so I'm 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 going to do the this other thing I want to do it a different way and you know that's that's helpful also in doing stuff for so long you kind of need to give yourself little challenges I mean another I mean another good example of that like a big example of that would be I really hate ranked lists and that's obviously a major part of, <laughs> of music uh, <laughs> media by the time it was around 2010, I just moved everything that would be, I mean, I never did ranked lists on the site, but like once I started like being okay, I wanna do something that like reflects like this is what happened in this year. Um, I just really went towards a playlist model of something that was, you know, representing a lot of different things, but not making them, putting them in a hierarchy, like not having mm-hmm. the apples fight the oranges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still waiting for a lot of publications to kind of move more in that direction, because I think especially now, I mean, the, the sheer volume of music that comes out every year is, is it just seems like it's more and more all the time. On top of that, the sheer number of genres that everyone takes seriously, I mean, it's not like there's like necessarily more genres now than there used to be, but there is much more of an interest in um, inclusivity. So in doing that, it just feels absurd to put like, to, you know, pit like things that have virtually nothing in common, they have totally different contexts, totally different genres. Uh, I mean, totally different approaches to music and like what the music's supposed to do or like, it just seems very silly to, to I mean, you, you want to put them on the same playing field. You want to put them all in context of each other because I think it, it makes everything more interesting that way. Uh, yeah, it's the hierarchy stuff, This it really, increasingly bothers me in that vein um what what do you think are some key sort of points to go by when you're trying to like stand out like flux blog is successful but there are so many blogs that just aren't obviously you have the advantage of having done this for a long time and you've worked for different publications so you sort of understand the inner workings of places how do you sort of how do you stand out at this point in 2022 when it seems like everything is at your fingertips I think just, you know, being extremely yourself and just having your own take on things like that's that's one of the the valuable things about blogs as opposed to like a publication that's kind of a includes a bunch of different perspectives and points of view. And I think you can argue that like certain publications can like really lose sense of who they are and what they are by having this turnover of people and you can definitely point to ways that it's positive where bringing in new people creates new perspectives. It means you cover certain things better, but it also makes it so it's harder to track like what the the internal values are. So Mm -hmm. I think one of the benefits of doing this by myself is that people can intuit where I'm coming from. And that can mean a lot of different things, whether it's my background, my age, or just like what, my taste is like I think one of the things if you just go through a lot of my stuff is like you start seeing like oh this guy has a real bias in favor of up-tempo things up-tempo or mid-tempo I don't go for as many like slow tempo things so even something like that becomes a thing where it's like you don't really probably want to come to me if you're really like a very slow tempo kind of person um, like a Nick Cave fan yeah I'm ne- I've never been jump a Nick right Cave off guy. your website never <laughs> been a Nick Cave guy but yeah, yeah. so like yeah like that that kind of I mean that's actually a very good example because like I've never really been that into that kind of like sad bastard kind of guy thing 
you know, I'm, I'm not your guy for that. I, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to, you know, create a guide for that because I'm, 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 mm -hmm. I'm a terrible guide for that. That's the best thing anyone can offer, whether it's a large publication or a small one, is some kind of consistent point of view that people can kind of connect with and, you know, feel like, okay, I, I understand this. Like, I trust them. I mean, so much of any kind of arts criticism is developing authority and trust, where people can recognize that this person knows what they're talking about. And also, I'm going to, I'm going to, if, if they really like something, I'm going to follow through with it. I think when critics don't like stuff, that's, a, that can be a little harder to track. And that's another thing that's always guided what I've been doing is that I don't, I think people are pretty much always right about what they like, but when you're, when you dislike something, it's very often because of something to do with you. And it's not, it's not even necessarily like all, all art is like great, but it's just like the reasons you dislike something are really more personal. They're really more, and they, they can be very petty in ways that you might not even fully digested, you know, like, oh, this just reminds me of some guy I hate. Can you think of an example of a specific actor artist that got dismissed by a large publication and then was sort of redeemed once they started getting recognized otherwise? Oh God, there's gotta be some really, I'm, I'm, that would be a good article. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been redeemed in the recent past, but they're usually like more like pop star things. And it's funny because my memory is long enough that I can remember when like certain artists who are now kind of seen as like these bulletproof deities, like Beyonce was like routinely dismissed. Like there is a post that I wrote in 2006 um, where I'm really, <laughs> I'm writing from a defensive standpoint, like people need to understand that Beyonce is a real artist. She is a, she's a genius. Like she's doing like these conceptual things that are, uh, you know, it's like all these things that now are utterly taken for granted about her. And I'm, I'm kind of proud to have been like early wave of that, but mm -hmm. it now just seems so funny. It, it would be like, oh my, you know, I think these Beatles are here to stay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you think of something, you, obviously you're very familiar with the landscape of pub publications and, you know, print and as well as online. Can you think of something that's missing? I think there's still a lot of different perspectives that are missing. Like the publications still lean towards, not the, it leans towards the obvious, but not, I mean, it's not even fully that. I think there's, I don't think there's a lot of like really vibrant rap publications there were there were like a little while ago there's one really good one that popped up recently i wish i could remember off the top of my head it's a totally independent one i mean there's a there's a few i think cocaine blunts is still going that that's that one's from my generation of things speaking more broadly like the bigger publications have been forced by the nature of how to promote anything on social media and because you can you have the transparency of seeing the numbers on every single thing you publish to push towards popularity and to push towards covering major things, even if it's not really like the voice of the publication or the, or the existing taste of the publication, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't really have any problem with publications covering popular artists or like taking Taylor Swift and Drake seriously. You, you should, they're huge artists. But I think it really crowds out like all the things that would be much smaller. And I think 
if I really want something to change, I really would like to kind of swing the pendulum back towards a lot of independent publications. And there, there really are a lot of independent publications. There's more than it seems, because there's really not really any hub to go to to see them all. Um, I, a little while ago, I was interested in like maybe building that, and I realized, oh, I actually don't have the capability of building this. But I was reaching out and just finding all the independent publications, like regardless of what platform they were on, try to make a database of it. And it was at least like a hundred or so things. Uh, they're all going around the world and there's there's some really good new publications that are even in print. There's one uh, in England called Loud and Quiet that I like a lot. And I look to them for like, oh, what's going on in, in England for especially? I think they're kind of like filling a niche that like the NME would have had like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But yeah, I think we need more small things because that's kind of where like the smaller artists can thrive and it's also where people can say things without needing permission i think that's so much of like when you're working as a freelancer you need permission to write anything and you know there, there's like an old uh huggy bear song uh, i think it's one of the best punk rock songs ever called her jazz and there's a line it's like this is happening without your permission it's like yes that is like the absolute essence of, of a diy mindset uh, i would like to see that more what about in terms of looking forward, like the future of the power of a review or a journalist? How has that role, do you think, evolved? I, I think it depends. I mean, the technology always changes it too, right? Because um, like YouTube has been very powerful for music critics, whether it's like Anthony Fantano or um, oh, why am I forgetting the guy I like better? <laughs> Sorry, uh, Todd in the Shadows. And like they have substantial audiences. And I, I think, um, I mean, I, I certainly regret not getting in on YouTube or something like that earlier. I think during the point in time where um, I probably should have made more choices of how to change my site or make it adapt it, I kind of went the other way because I was like pretty steadily employed through that era. So I wasn't really looking at it in terms of like a, a thing that I need to grow. It was really just a thing that I did and I didn't care whether people were there for it or not my own priorities have changed a bit more. Like I, I definitely would like more attention to things at the moment. I, I think that you kind of have to meet people where they are. So um, I, I don't know if there's necessarily people like doing like real critical writing on TikTok. I know there is forms of critical stuff that happens on TikTok, but I'm not really sure how many people are doing it necessarily for music. I, I've heard of a few things uh, where people are doing more musical, sorry, uh, musicological stuff on TikTok. But I think TikTok, if, if I was coming into it now, I would probably just try to figure out how to do interesting things there, especially since music is such a, a crucial part of that platform. It seems like the easiest place to really connect with young people for sure who are interested in music. Was there a point where you were ever cynical about that trend when we saw sort of songs blowing up on TikTok and it was, I don't think it was a surprise to anybody who understands the trends and, 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 you know, what gets clicks, but have you ever found like you were cynical about sort of that process of getting fame? No, because of my own background in the internet of, of doing the music blogging and, have, and seeing variations of that through that. And then also like when I was steadily employed, I was steadily employed at Buzzfeed and just being really connected to that kind of virality and like really thinking a lot about it for many years. Like I, I cannot possibly begrudge these things. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like the, the logical and obvious thing. And if, and if you think about the history of popular music, it's really 
largely dictated by changes in technology through time. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to stop happening. We're not going to like just freeze in this moment. I mean, this would be a weird moment to freeze in, but if we had just frozen the moment of the iTunes store being <laughs> the main hub of the music industry, I don't know. It's good for these things to keep changing. And I think, uh, I mean, really the most beautiful thing about technological change is that it gives like a new cohort of people it gives new people a chance to kind of get in because like in those early Wild West stages is where like the opportunity for bold people really presents itself. And that's where you kind of get the, these uh, shuffles of status quo. That's valuable for art and for culture and also for giving people a chance to have, you know, lives or cool things happening to them on, on the very minimum. What do you think your teenage self would say? or would think now that they saw that you've created a successful blog and you're working in, in the field you started out in? Um, I think I would have been a little bit surprised, but also pretty cool with it because um, I was so into music magazines from such a young age that it just kind of seems like a logical thing. I think thinking of my younger self, I basically had like three or four obsessions, which were basically the same three or four obsessions I have to this day. And it was, I guess it was just a question of like, which one would get it? And I guess that was the one that got it. I guess there's still room to kind of move in the other directions too, since they still connect to writing. But yeah, I don't think I would be too surprised by myself. Thanks so much to David Harris, Jason Grishkoff, Zach Johnson, and Matthew Perpetua for their time and insights. You can find links to their work and socials in the show notes. Beneath the Rhythm is an RX Music podcast, produced by Craig Clemens, Regan McDonnell, and Laura McInnes-Ray. Graphics by Andre Grant, music by Chris Shards, Roy Edwin Williams, Future Joust, with theme music by Chameleon Glade. The full interview with Jan Wenner is from the Chris Boskin Dean Speaker Series at Berkeley Haas with Grill Marcus. Link in the description. If you've enjoyed the program, you can reach us at podcasts at rxmusic.com. I'm your host, Laura McInnes-Ray. Thanks for listening.